I remember being a kid, up late at night, watching TV, and seeing these ads. For about 70 cents, you can buy a can of soda, regular or diet. In Ethiopia, for just 70 cents a day, you can feed a child like Jamal nourishing meals. This ad from the Christian Children's Fund shows a young boy. He looks to be around four years old. He's wrapped in cloth, crying. The image is meant to motivate viewers to open their wallets. Christmas in July? We're broadcasting this commercial now because thousands of children won't survive until Christmas without your help. Call now to see how you can I always hated these ads. My family is from Ethiopia. The images these ads were pushing out, it wasn't of an Ethiopia I recognized. The worst offenders are called poverty porn. All pity, no dignity. And some trace this fundraising tactic back to 1985, to one watershed event. Be a part of the most important rock event ever staged, Live Aid. The Live Aid concert. Live performances from David Bowie, Mick Jagger, Queen, dozens of the biggest stars on the planet. They told a story of a starving nation. But how much did that story actually help? From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. On July 13th, 1985, 37 years ago this week, viewers across the globe, we're talking more than a billion people, watched the Live Aid concert on TV. Today on the show, we're exploring Live Aid's legacy and the picture it painted of an entire continent. Plus, what it's like for your home country to be in the spotlight from an Ethiopian living in America. After the break, Live Aid rocks the world. But don't take my word for it. Take David Bowie's. It should be the concert of the decade. Please make sure that you tune in on Saturday and help Live Aid concert with their appeal. Thank you. One of the brains behind Live Aid was this guy, this Irish rock star, Bob Geldof. He's the lead vocalist of an Irish rock band called the Boomtown Rats. Their songs could often be found climbing UK's top singles charts. In 1984, Geldof's rock career was plateauing. But he found a new way to make his mark. He was going to wake up the wealthy West and make them pay attention to famine in Africa. Here's Geldof in a documentary produced by Polygram Music Video about his efforts. At the moment, the grain silos of Europe and Midwest America are bursting with food. And that, that they don't immediately release it, these people dying there, is a crime in which we're all partaking. Geldof had recently learned about a famine in Ethiopia from a 1984 BBC expose. Reporters brought their cameras to a refugee camp. This place, say workers here, is the closest thing to hell on earth. Thousands of wasted people are coming here for help. Many find only death. The famine had been going on for years, affecting more than six million people in Ethiopia. 
Geldof was moved, but he was a musician. What could he do? His idea? Use the music industry to spotlight starvation. So he gathered a bunch of big-name artists. They called themselves Band Aid. Get it? They recorded a song called Do They Know It's Christmas and released it in December of 84. It is an extraordinary operation that um, came together just because people wanted to do something. So uh, I'm glad we did it. Now, I would love to play this song for you, but our lawyer didn't love that idea. So let's just spend a moment with these lyrics instead, shall we? And there won't be snow in Africa this Christmas time. The greatest gift they'll get this year is life, where nothing ever grows, no rain or rivers flow. Do they know it's Christmas time at all? Wow, I just, there is so much to unpack here. Do you start with the fact that it definitely does snow on the continent? Like, did they forget about mountains? Or do you go with the fact that many, if not most, of the Ethiopians affected by the famine were Christian? I mean, Christianity has been practiced in Ethiopia since the 4th century, to this day, so yeah, pretty sure they know it's Christmas. When the song was re-recorded in 2014, Geldof fielded some of these same criticisms. He told The Telegraph, it's a pop song, it's not a doctoral thesis. He pointed out that the song succeeded in getting people talking. Quote, Now it's the common currency of conversation in the UK, and it's because of this record. When it first dropped, the single was an instant smash. So a few months later, American musicians were inspired to form another supergroup. It was made up of dozens of the biggest stars on the planet. They called the group USA for Africa. Gotta love the specificity. And two of the group's members, Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson, wrote another song, We Are the World. In 1986, they received a Grammy for Song of the Year. We are so proud to be a part of an industry of people that in a time when the world is in need of, of helping each other, this music industry of ours responded. Both Do They Know It's Christmas and We Are the World raked in millions for famine relief in Africa. Geldof told Billboard Weekly they succeeded in making, quote, compassion hip. But he wanted to take it further, do something more than release a hit song. Enter the mega charity concert Live Aid. This is the ultimate that pop music can do. Quite literally, is the ultimate. You can't do anything more after this. Right. And uh, the commitment of pop music need never be doubted. It was an incredible undertaking. Geldof and his team had managed to put the whole show together in just 10 weeks. And they went live on July 13th, 1985. By most accounts, it is the biggest, most complicated broadcast in history. 16 hours of live television from two different locations separated by an ocean. A 16-hour concert. It had over 50 sets, and it also packed in as many megastars as possible. Sting, Billy Ocean, The Who, B.B. King, George Michael, Joan Baez. And they played on two stages, 
one in London and one in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is not the only site of a mammoth concert because simultaneously there will be a concert at Wembley Stadium in London. The broadcast took more than a dozen satellites zipping around our planet. People in over 100 nations were able to watch from the comfort of their homes. In between sets, celebrities like Sally Field asked for donations. The price tag to rescue them from this famine is $1.5 billion. If everyone watching this show would give just $1, then we could end this famine. Even David Bowie introduced footage of starving children. A toddler with their ribs showing, too weak to stand up. Skeletal babies trying to nurse from their mothers. Children crying, covered in dust, clinging onto their parents for comfort. And these types of images, these graphic depictions of poverty, they were used throughout the broadcast. And it worked. Money poured in. We are over what point, J.D.? $250,000 in only five hours. And it looks like we're climbing at the rate of about $75,000 an hour now. But it's still not enough. you got to give your donation. Following the concert, the funds soared to more than $100 million. Geldof was lauded as a hero. He was even nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. The event was hailed as a miracle. Considering the amount of money raised during this 16-hour concert, some are calling the Live Aid telethon a miracle. But it will take two miracles if Live Aid is to be a total success. The second miracle will come only if all that money can actually save lives. All that money. This is where people started asking questions. Perhaps the organization's most difficult task lies ahead. How will they get the food and medical supplies to the starving people of Africa? Concert producer Bill Graham says there are no guarantees. It would be foolish for me to tell you that I can guarantee anything. A journalist at the music magazine Spin looked into it. The magazine published an expose a year after the concert, claiming charity funds ended up in the wrong hands. The report was explosive. Similar claims were later made by the BBC in 2010, but the media giant later walked it back and apologized for a misleading and unfair impression. Geldof released a statement in response to the controversy. He said he wasn't aware of diverted funds, and it wasn't likely that organizations on the ground would let that happen. We reached out to Geldof for our story. He wasn't available for an interview before this episode came out, but he did email us, called accusations about diverted funds silly. But the bigger issue was the story Live Aid told, a story that's been examined by scholars and the media in the years that followed. Some scholars have noted that Live Aid portrayed Ethiopians as inferior, helpless, and unable to care for themselves. Now, obviously, Live Aid wasn't the first to paint a stereotypical image of Africans in poverty. But that image, it has a lot of staying power. In 2001, Volunteer Service Overseas, an international development organization, commissioned a survey of British people about their attitudes toward the developing world. It found that 80% of people associate the developing world with doom-laden images of famine, disaster, and Western aid. Most saw the developing world as dependent on Western money and knowledge. Ah, yes, a bit of casual imperialism. 
Can't say it's very shocking, though. Actually, it's the part of this whole thing that I'm most interested in exploring. I'm Ethiopian-American, and growing up, I was surrounded by this sort of attitude. Stereotypes and confident ignorance casually sprinkled in throughout the day. My mom immigrated from Ethiopia to the U.S. in the late 70s, and she worked really hard to counter the ill-informed narratives, meeting ignorance with information. I would tell her about questions I got from kids at school. Did your parents live in a hut? Did they have running water? Her response was to convince my teachers to let her put on an Ethiopian day. She would bring traditional musical instruments, a kurar, a begana, a painted drum. She'd wear traditional dress, and she'd cook for my entire school. No joke. She'd haul in a stack of injera and bring in steaming pots of alicha, shuro, dorowat, the less spicy version, obviously. The kids at school loved it. They got a break from class and the usual ham and cheese. The message? We aren't to be pitied. We are to be celebrated. The truth is, I hated Ethiopian Day. It made me feel like a show pony. I resented that my mom felt she had to take on this burden of education. It felt like she was explaining our existence, justifying it. The thing is, though, I felt that pull, too. The pull to counter the singular narrative of a monolithic Africa. I don't like it. That shit's exhausting and pretty much unpaid labor. But I just couldn't stand so many people being so wrong about the people I love. Go figure. Lucky me, though, because now I have a podcast and a chance to share stories that expand that monolithic narrative of one struggling Africa. A chance to hear from actual Ethiopians about what Live Aid missed and how Western minds changed. You know, ironically, if it changed, it was not for the better. That's after the break. The Live Aid concert will continue in just a moment. Welcome back. So we've heard Live Aid's version of Ethiopia. Now I'm going to tell you about the Ethiopia I know. The Ethiopia I learned about from family stories, from photo albums, from the occasional trip home. This is where my mom was raised, where she went to a private school run by Italian nuns and spent her free time reading National Geographic and dreaming of attending the University of Oxford. She had warm memories of vacationing with her family in the countryside, visiting the hot springs, special trips to the bakery to pick up pastries, learning to drive a stick shift in just the third grade, but being so short she could barely see over the steering wheel. Crushes and friend drama and homework and birthday parties, these were the stories of her life. I knew other Ethiopians had equally nuanced experiences as famine conditions unfolded. So I started asking around. Friends, family. One person referred me to another. And then Daniel Tariku was on the line, telling me about coming of age in Ethiopia in the 1970s. My family was uh, pretty well off, what you would call upper middle class here in the U.S. My father was a pharmacist. My mother was a nurse. 
my father drove a, a Toyota and my mother drove a Volkswagen. Daniel grew up in the town of Desie, north of Ethiopia's capital, Addis Abeba. Desie is surrounded practically on all sides by large, uh, tall mountains. And there is a river that passes uh, east of town and the gorge there. Desie is a lively town surrounded by pine and eucalyptus trees. The streets were fairly narrow and uh, were crowded with people and people coming and going. There are donkeys, there are uh, cars, there are buses, there are mules. Daniel's afternoons were filled with soccer games and baseball. Sometimes, for a little fun, Daniel and his friends trekked up into the mountains, which were populated by monkeys. So we used to go out there and, uh, and chase monkeys and sometimes be chased by them. But changes in the country forced Daniel to grow up fast. In the early 70s, the country was thrown into famine conditions. Part of the issue was drought. The price of grain skyrocketed in some parts of the country. It was in such short supply that ranchers couldn't feed their livestock. Daniel says middle-class enclaves and most urban centers were shielded from the worst of it. Human Rights Watch later found that the government sought to conceal the famine. Generally, it was the poorer rural areas that were devastated. People in search of food became refugees, migrating to relief camps. There is a refugee camp uh, north of Desi. And in fact, I didn't go there, but my parents did. And they met a little girl. Famine and drought had killed her family, but she survived by walking to the refugee camp. Daniel's parents decided to take her in. And so she became my sister, our sister. In 1974, amidst the famine, there was a coup. A Marxist military junta, the DERK, took control of the country. Their leader, Mengustu Haile Mariam, became the dictator of Ethiopia. Like in other Marxist regimes, the government nationalized a lot of private land, including Daniel's father's. He, he had a tree farm with eucalyptus trees, and uh, he did not want to sell it. And then the, when the government came, of course, all land and the property on it was nationalized. So my father thought it was just a purely criminal act being performed by the government uh, to take people's properties. And he also was a gun owner, so they confiscated all guns. Daniel's weekends of baseball and soccer were soon replaced by street cleaning and lessons about communism. Uh, we learned uh, nothing, practically. Uh, so this was a indoctrination, more so than a teaching session. Uh, it was about the, the evils of imperialism. Uh, it was about the goodness of communism. Hundreds of thousands of people fled Ethiopia during Mengistu's regime, including my own family. Many fled to neighboring Somalia, Sudan, and Kenya. As for Daniel, in 1980, he got an opportunity. At 19 years old, he got into an American college. He didn't hesitate. The reason that I left the country is because of Mangustu. My parents felt like uh, that was uh, a bad uh, place to be. And so they did everything they could to uh, have me out, uh, out of there. One of Daniel's earliest memories of the U.S. was when his aunt in California took him out for a bite to eat. And my very first meal was 
she had me eat uh, a Big Mac and French fries and strawberry milkshake. And I thought, oh, that's why America is superpower. It can prepare this type of fabulous food. It's amazing. It's interesting. My mom has a similar story about coming to the States, but uh, with Taco Bell and being oh. and uh, okay. like having sour cream and, you know, ground beef for the first time together and that blowing her mind. So it's funny <laughs> okay. how the fast food chains. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and then I, I discovered Kentucky Fried Chicken. What Daniel's talking about, that awe at the abundance, I'd heard it before. Stories from my family of visiting overstimulating supermarkets, ordering a small soda that seemed more like an extra large, portions of food that seem normal when you've grown up here, but totally shocking if you didn't. It's a classic coming to America revelation. Damn, they got a lot of stuff here. But it wasn't just the food. There were other things about the U.S. that surprised them. When I, when I talked to my mom, she, her impression, she said, was really formed by National Geographic. And she was, I remember she talks about, like, seeing photos of the Great Plains and, you know, the grain silos. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and you're exactly right. It's one of the things that my father um, read was the National Geographic. So when he came for the first time, he just said, OK, take me to the real America. I had to find a, a dairy farm so he could see all these cows being milked. Their image of the U.S. was one of bucolic bliss. Turns out, Americans didn't have quite so generous an impression of Ethiopia. I was uh, in shock how little they knew about a place like Ethiopia. People felt like it's just a land of uh, flatland with savanna full of dry grass, uh, maybe some game animals, and uh, the people are just, you know, some tribal people. Uh, they can't fathom the fact that uh, there are buildings and highways and cars and uh, people that are pharmacists and doctors and engineers. Uh, that stuff just didn't cross their mind. Daniel went on to study engineering at UC Berkeley. He met lots of people who were smart and well-intentioned, but had some really dumb ideas about Ethiopia. There was a guy, I was chewing gum, and he says, is this the first time you're chewing gum? Did you know that when you are growing up? Ah, yes, because how could a continent like Africa be graced with the advanced technology of chewing gum? Daniel decided to have some fun with this guy. I said, uh, you know, I, I'm chewing this thing to swallow it, but I'm not able to break it down, so I'm, I'm perplexed. And uh, he just found that fascinating. I told him that um, we used to just walk around with fig leaves and we lived in caves and he completely believed it. And, and not until the following semester, another Ethiopian came along and the guy went and talked to him and said, so uh, did you also live in a cave like Daniel? And uh, the guy did not find that funny. So he was very, not only offended by the guy, but he was offended uh, um, by me for telling him such a thing. I'm curious, like, about that that reaction of, of feeling amused. Like, I don't know, what, why do you feel like you reacted that way as opposed to, you know, something something like anger. I suppose my uh, reaction should have been, 
uh, to educate them and to let them know of the realities of that place. But in my, you know, 19-year-old or 20-year-old mind, that's how I dealt with it. It was a coping mechanism in a way. Uh, and uh, I just found humor in it instead of, uh, you know, being offended by it. When I heard these stories, I felt anger for Daniel. They reminded me of the stories my mom would tell me about well-meaning friends making embarrassing assumptions about her past. How she was thin because she must have been starving. How people assumed she hadn't been eating meat because of poverty, when in fact, she'd just become a vegetarian. My mom would tell me not to worry when people made comments like that. This was their ignorance. Daniel found that more people started talking about Ethiopia while he was in college. The big change? Live Aid. His strongest memory of this time was the music and hearing that song, We Are the World, on the radio. He and his friends, people from all different walks of life, would listen together. They'd make a game of naming each artist they heard. You know, oh, that's Stevie Wonder, or that's Paul McCartney. Uh, this is, that's Cindy Loper. Or, uh, so we, we were trying to figure out who was singing next or who was singing uh, at that time. So Ethiopia was on more people's minds, or at least on their car stereos. But Daniel felt the overall message Westerners were getting was flat stereotypical. You know, it didn't give uh, a bigger, a more complex picture for the country. The starvation really kind of solidified in a lot of Americans' minds. Now, famine continues to be a big problem in Ethiopia today. Take the Tigray region in the north. Analysis by United Nations agencies and aid groups revealed that as of mid-2021, more than 400,000 people there were suffering famine-like conditions. Millions more are at risk. The dictator Mengistu is no longer in power. He fled the country in the early 90s and was later sentenced to death by Ethiopia's Supreme Court for crimes of genocide. Today, the country is in the middle of a civil war in the Tigray region. An indefinite truce was called in March so that humanitarian aid could be brought in. The situation remains precarious. And Geldof, he's still at work sending aid. In an email, he said their efforts are focused on the people in Tigray, who he is, quote, trying to feed, clothe, educate, and protect. When I think about this whole culture of foreign charity, from live aid to the late-night ads to the pleas to save Africa— the thing I can't let go of is that narrow story. The suggestion that an entire group of people should be rescued by some benevolent provider. In Ethiopia, for just 70 cents a day, you can feed a child like Jamal nourishing meals. Daniel has seen it too. Sometimes these ads came in the middle of the night, maybe in the dead of the night. And somehow when I didn't sleep, I happened to turn on the TV and I would see these just god-awful photos of starving kids that are moving sluggishly with nothing but skin and bones. And 
a church or some or religious organization would say, uh, you know, send your money now so that we can uh, help feed these children. I was always very wary about that. One way to counter this monolithic image? More stories. Ones that center the voices of people being talked about. Stories about Africa as told by Africans. Ethiopian stories from Ethiopian voices. And when the time does come to extend support, I hope we can do away with the savior fantasy, see people as their whole selves, offer solidarity, and not just charity. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Nick Del Rose. Next week, we're telling you the story of Dr. Walter Freeman and the medical procedure he loved most, the lobotomy. He wanted mass lobotomies and he wanted a quick way of spreading this procedure. The rest of our team is producer Sarah Craig. Our associate producers are Julie Carley and Ramoy Phillip. Laura Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Annie Gilbertson and Andrea B. Scott. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Hansdale Shee. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Ascal Getane, Alem Hailu, Alem Nicodemos, Azib Nicodemos, Eden Nicodemos. Polygram music video. We pulled several clips from their documentary, Do They Know It's Christmas? And to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Hahn, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, rate the show five stars. Come on, don't be shy. You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. Talahun Gassasad, he's like the Elvis of Ethiopia, sang a song, Why Why Silu? And he was expressing the plight of the starving uh, children and everyone in his singing. And he was actually crying as he sang it. And we saw him on TV. 